0: Tom Nettles this morning. Dr. Nettles is widely regarded as one of the foremost Baptist historians in America. He's a retired professor of historical theology at the Southern Southern Baptist (laughs) Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, um, which began, actually, if you don't know the history, began in South Carolina. Before they moved to Louisville. Um, Dr. Nels is married to Margaret. They have three children and five grandchildren. I guess when that bio was written, I, there may be more grandchildren now. Well, that's I don't
1: that's know. it so
0: far. I read something interesting last night. I, mean, I wish we had time for his testimony. But he was converted after his first year at seminary. Southwestern, while leading singing in a revival meeting. Eventually, the music leader gets saved. <laughs> he came to Southern Seminary from the faculty of Tr- uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he's professor of church history and chair of the Department of Church History. He taught at Southwestern. Baptist Theological Seminary, and then Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. It took him quite a way to get to the right seminary, been for a number of years at Southern. He's the author of books and articles. I'd commend these books to you and by his grace and for his glory. Wonderful Baptist in the Bible with Russ Bush, I meant to tell you that he, uh, Dr. Bush, was one of my D-Men intensive professors. Oh. And what a wonderful man. We miss him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> whomever he wills. And then um, I, just, I just got this this week, so I'll brag about the book I have. Um, Living by Revealed Truth, the Life and Pastoral Theology of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In reading last night, <clears throat> I realized that um, just in July, Dr. Nettles was able to preach in Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. What a great thrill! I'm sure that was. Though retired from full-time preaching, he's still teaching. I mean, full-time teaching. He's still teaching and and writing, and for that, we Baptists should be very grateful. And after our morning prayer, he'll come and share the word with us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we've gathered today as your people, your church, your family. Because it's only by grace, by grace alone. Through faith alone, for the glory of Christ alone, that we are able to gather here and worship you. It's only by grace alone that we would want to come and worship you today and so we praise you for that we worship you and we thank you for your church your gathered church around the world some gathering today in secrecy because of persecution and yet we are able to worship here in freedom as of now and we're grateful for that. Some of our church are in other places, and we've got members today who are traveling. Lord, we pray that you would give them safety in their travels. We have blessed members of our fellowship who are homebound, and some of them want to be here more than we wanted to be here today. And and we pray your blessings in their lives and use us to minister to them. We have some in the hospital. And Lord, we have some who have drifted away. We pray that you would do a work in their hearts and lives and use us as your church to draw them back to yourself. And then we have missionaries, Father, around the world leading worship and praying and witnessing and serving you and some in particularly dangerous places because these are dangerous times. And so, God, we pray for your protection over our missionaries as they serve you around the world. Keep them safe. Give them boldness. Give them strength to do the work that you've called them to do. And as these are dangerous times, we pray for our world and our nation. We pray for our leaders, our president and his family, our vice president and his family. Lord, we pray for our governor and her family, our mayor and his family, and our police chief and fire chief and all those people, Lord, that you've placed above us. God, give them your wisdom. Give them guidance the decisions they make, and that they may make godly decisions. The task is hard for them. We pray that they might learn to trust you. And we thank you today, Father, for your word. We thank you for faithful men of God like Tom Nettles and so many others who are serving you and proclaiming your word in the pulpit today. We pray that you would continue to use him and bless his ministry and that today you would speak through him, that you would change us by the power of your word, Father. We pray this prayer in the name of the one who brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you very much. What a privilege to be here and to be able to participate in your worship with you and bring the word of God to you this morning. And I pray that his spirit will teach all of us as we seek to open his revealed word. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter one. I want to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ this morning uh, as prophet, priest and king, as he is revealed to us in this this passage of Scripture, as it is introducing to us a very rich, full discussion of the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator of a new covenant, as the one in whom the, all the provisions of this covenant uh, subsist and who is the fulfillment of all of them and why it is absolutely essential that one trust in Christ alone for salvation and trust in any other source uh, is uh, devastating. Even those sources that earlier were revealed in the sacrificial system and the, the system of uh, priesthood and the prophets of the past and the worship of the past and all of those things that we know had been revealed by God to the to the Israelites. This particular generation was tempted to go back to that kind of worship. They were suffering. They were ostracized. There was a possibility of death coming upon them because of their worship of the Christ and they began to reason, well, if uh, if that worship was OK before, if that worship was revealed of God, if we were considered the people of God and the peculiar people before, what would be wrong with our simply maintaining our relationship with with all of with them? What would be wrong about that since it was re- was revealed? And so the writer of Hebrews is investigating that That phenomenon of what it means to have been within a body of those who are worshiping according to divine revelation, who were the peculiar people, and yet now that the Christ has come, what does this mean? Can it be right at all? Can it in any sense be sort of like a a gradated uh, salvation that, well, maybe they'll get some of the blessings of salvation if they stay within that Jewish civil and ceremonial system, but they just will not suffer the, the temporal pressures that come to bear through a full proclamation of Christ as Lord. And so the writer is addressing that issue, and we have one of the most extended, intense presentations of the finality of Jesus Christ and the absolute necessity of making sure that our trust and our faith is in him alone uh, in the book of Hebrews. And he introduces that exposition with uh, an intensity that is worthy of the rest of the discussion. And so let's look at how the writer of Hebrews introduces us to the reality that that the uh, prophet, priest and king have all been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ And that if we do not have salvation through him, then we do not have salvation at all. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, I'll deal with the rest of the chapter as we go through looking at the exposition of these words. But we see very clearly that the writer is introducing us to the glory of Christ, to his infinite worthiness and excellence. The language he uses is language that would be impossible to improve upon, it would be impossible to find more intense language affirming all of the superlatives of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, his power in the world and the purpose for which the world was established and the how essential he is to the beginning and the ongoing of the world and to the salvation of sinners. There is uh, no language that can be imagined that would express this in a clearer way. We see he fulfills the role of prophet in these first verses when he says God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by son. And then he explains why that's the revelation of the son Uh, puts an end to the need for all other prophetic ministries. And then he says, after making purification for sins, this is his priestly work. This is the work of the priest to make purification for sins. And throughout the rest of the book, he spends many chapters explaining why it is that, that Christ, though he is of the tribe of Judah, actually is the final priest. He puts an end to the Levitical priesthood. He introduces a new kind of priesthood that is the final priesthood. And all the sacrifices are done for and all the accoutrements of the sacrifices, the, the tabernacle and all of that, all the robes, all the vestments, all of that has been done away with now. Christ is, is the fulfillment of it. And he embraces that in this phrase after making purification for sins and then his kingly reign is captured in these words he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high he is ruling he is reigning he is there with God the father that is the majesty on high and all things will be put under his feet Uh, and then in order to manifest the Equal efficacy of all of the persons of the Trinity as the one God, when all things are under the feet of this redeemer king, then he will hand all things back to the father so that God may be all in all. And I think the writer felt compelled to load up this first part of his letter in order that it will be somewhat breathtaking and shocking to those who are reading. And then he can uh, sort of unpack this the rest of the way in this letter. So if we were to ask ourselves the question, how is it that any person can know God? We have a pretty full introductory course to that in this text. That should be an important question, should it not, for everyone. That should be the ultimate question that everyone asks themselves. If there is a God, how can I know him? And it would seem to be pretty self-evident there is a God. As the Bible says, we have not made ourselves. We certainly didn't create the world. And we investigate the world with intelligence, hoping to subdue it, hoping to understand about it, hoping to understand how it works, realizing that there. Our cause and effect relationships and the world operates in such a way as if we just get all the right our understanding of it, then we can gradually subdue it. We can we can know it. I mean, just just think about the invention of a wheel and what what are the physics of the wheel and how does the wheel operate And any culture that rejects the wheel is going to be a culture that has a lot of problems uh, operating. It's just a simple discovery, but it's it's something it's it helps us the way the world rolls, so to speak. Uh, If if we if we reject the idea that that the mind actually can comprehend reality, then we just throw away the whole scientific enterprise. If we reject the idea that the question why actually can produce answers that we think that there is intelligence within the world and that somehow minds in investigating the world can discover uh, secrets of it and What are all the relationships if we give up asking the question why or we think the world is so irrational and fragmented and has no intelligent design in it at all? If we give up that, then uh, we just capitulate to all the forces of the world that will destroy us and we will never make any progress. Everything about our culture is a witness to the fact that we really do believe that God has created the world and he has created us in his likeness. Or with an ability to understand him, even with the witness of general revelation. But now this text comes to us telling us that there's a way we can know much more precisely about God, because not only do we have to sort of ferret out these truths about God in general revelation and asking those kinds of questions and seeking to think God's thoughts after him in that way. But God actually has spoken to us. God actually has told us things that are not discoverable. By general revelation, and he's been doing it ever since the creation of the world. And the writer is saying this long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke to Adam. He spoke in many ways before the flood. He spoke through Noah, a preacher of righteousness. He spoke after the flood and set a covenantal sign In the heavens, showing that the world had been destroyed by water, but he would not do it again. But that means that there will be a judgment. God has already judged the world once, he will judge it again. He spoke to Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham. He established a people through Abraham exactly in the way that he said he would. He settled that people in the land where they became a great nation, he led them out, he gave them prophets. As Amos said, he gave them Nazarites and he gave them prophets. He gave them a symbol of of self-imposed mortification for the sake of holiness. Provisions that he gave them in order to manifest that. He gave them prophets that would speak the word of God to them. But the hardness of their heart made them try to get the Nazarites to deny their vows. It says you made the Nazarites drink wine and you would not allow the prophets to prophesy. But God still continued to speak to them in spite of the hardness of their heart. And even those prophets that were rejected in their own time, eventually what they said came true. And even those people who had rejected the prophets came to recognize that they spoke for God. Isaiah was rejected in his time, was ridiculed in his time, was opposed in his time. But what he said came true. Jeremiah was opposed in his time, ridiculed in his time. His writing was cut up and burned and he was thrown in a pit, but what he said came true and became a part of the whole of the canon that these hard hearted people that rejected him during his time now saw that he spoke for God. Uh, the fact that they recognized God had spoken, even though during the time that these prophets lived, they opposed them is a powerful witness to the fact that what they said was True, When they said, thus saith the Lord, this was not a figment of their imagination. It was not an authority they were taking upon themselves for which they had no warrant. It was something that flooded their soul with a clear confidence that God was speaking through them and had a message that was not of their own making, but a warning and also a word of grace to those people. And we know that the words of Isaiah would not be complete unless What had happened during the time of Jeremiah took place. We know that what Moses said would not have come to pass without the operations of Joshua. We know that the kingship of David and what he said would not have happened unless we see it beginning to be fulfilled in Solomon. But then we recognize that Solomon does not fulfill all the things promised to David. And so we look forward to David's greater Son, God at many times and in many ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he established the reality that God is speaking. God tells us things. God is out to to redeem a people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Who are they going to be? So he spoke to the prophets. But then the writer says, but in these last days. He has spoken to us by a son. Now, most translations have the son, and that certainly is true because it is the son. Some have his son. That is true. We learn through the argument throughout this that he is the son of God. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. We know it is his son. Jesus called him his father. But the point that the writer is making here is the qualitative distinction between the prophets and the son. And so so the word his, the word the is not there. It's just saying he did it through prophets, but now he has done it through a son. There's a qualitative difference. That's a big difference. We may send employees out to do other things, but when we send our son to do something, then then that, that has the element of, of arising out of our own affections, arising out of our own loins. It's something that this is this is this is one of my own nature I'm sending. This is why the the parables that Jesus Told, have such power and poignancy as the owner of the vineyard sends all of these these servants in they kill them. But then he says, ah but I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. There's a qualitative difference there. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing to that qualitative distinction. He sent these servants. He sent these people he appointed. But now he sends one that shares his nature. He sends one that actually knows the father intimately because he is. Generated by the father eternally. And so he, after he says this, he's spoken to us by a son. Now he goes into an exposition as to why this is so important, why this is so profound that he's spoken to us by a son. Look at all the things that he says about the son so that we can be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that when he speaks to us by a son, there is nothing of the revelation that is left out. There's no other there's no other prophet that is needed. There is no other revelation that needs to be given because everything that is necessary for us to know can be communicated to us by this son because he intrinsically knows all that should be done. He knows the purpose of the world. He upholds the world. He knows who God is because he is God. He is exuding godness in himself all the time. And he will never have to speak to us by any other servant except as it relates to the son, because now the son has spoken. Notice what he says about him. He has spoken to us by a son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. He just gets that out of the way. The reason the son has come in order that there might be an inheritance that he has. That's the purpose of the world. He's, the son is going to have an inheritance. That's what the writer wants us to know. That there, and we are, he calls us, in the book of Hebrews, he calls us heirs of the promise. Well, we are heirs of the promise because we joint heirs with Christ. Christ. The son is the heir of all things. Everything is made to glorify him. He inherits all of it. That's how much the father is pleased with the son. That's how much the father has in store for the son. He's the heir of all things. And then the reason he's the the heir of all things is because it is through through him that he created the world. Why did the world come into existence? So the son could be the heir of all things. That's what the writer is saying. He is the heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Why does the world exist? In order that the father will glorify his son and his being the heir of all things. He will show all the excellencies of the son, all the power of the son, all the wonderful, matchless beauty of the son. He will have myriads upon myriads of people indebted to the son for salvation. He will show the mercy of God and the loving kindness of God and the patience of God and the grace of God, as well as the justice of God and the holiness of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Through the son, he's the heir of all things, and he's created the world in order that he might be the heir of all things. Is there anyone else through whom he could speak in a way that is more powerful and that can let us know exactly the purpose of life and the purpose of all things? He can place within our minds goals toward which we should give all of our energy in order that we might be found among those who believe the message that the son has given us. He's spoken to us by a son. Who is the heir of all things through whom he created the world. Well, how can he how? Why is he the heir of all things and how is it that he has power to create the world? Well, because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of the glory of God means that the way that God is going to manifest the beauty and the excellence of all of his attributes, the way that we're going to see it. Is as we see and we understand internally and as both our internal eyes and then eventually our external eyes see the glory of God is manifest in the redemptive work of the sun. That will be the most magnificent manifestation of the glory of God, the, the radiance of. Of the glory of God, the glory of God is that which is intrinsically true about God's attributes, the radiance of the glory is that impression that it makes upon those who sense it upon those who feel it. You can feel the glory of God when you sing a song or there's something about singing about the mercy and the grace of God, as Frank was saying, the, the line that we have, how we are debtors to grace, how that that speaks to us, there's something about the radiance of the glory of God that we sense when we say those words and we would join with it with with others. It's just a just a very, very manner sprinkling of that. But if if we if it so wells up in us with such power during those moments, think what it would be like to dwell within that kind of sense of the glory of God forever in an unabated way. It never decreasing, but always increasing. And not only the internal sense of it, the sensing of the power and wonder and how is it transforming to the heart and the mind, how it elevates our thinking to all those things that are worthy and praise, the praiseworthy and, and virtuous and excellent raises us up. We, we think about that and how the internal effect. And then if we see externally, if all of our senses are filled up with the glory of God. That's, we're experiencing all of that through the sun. The sun is the radiance of his glory, all of the attributes, all the differences that the glory of God, the attributes of the God make in our souls. It is the sun, the S.O.N. that is the radiance And why? Why is that? How can he be the radiance of the glory of God? Well, the radiance of the sun does not come unless there is all of the material and the gaseous explosions and whatever is happening in the sun. You don't have that radiance unless that substance is there. The radiance is fully dependent upon the substance of it. And so the writer says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He can be the radiance of the glory of God because he is the exact imprint of his nature. All the love that God is, all the justice that God is, all the omnipotence that God is, the all-knowingness of God, the absolute eminence of God everywhere, all of him being in all places at all times, all of those irreversible, eternal attributes of God. Are shared by the son. They are resident within him. And so as a result of his desire to reveal to speak to us by his son. Our understanding of the impact of all of these attributes come to us through him. He is the radiance of the glory of God because he is the exact imprint of his nature. And therefore, because he has created the world with a purpose, and this purpose is for the display of his glory and the eternal manifestation of his intrinsic nature in glorious, transforming ways. So that other beings other than God and angels are enjoying this. This is an intrinsic property of God. He enjoys himself and he wants millions and millions and millions of other beings to enjoy him. That is that's just the, the natural propensity. You mean if you if this is just very in small ways, you have a child and you're so you love your child so much and you think your child is brilliant and wonderful. And you dress him up and you bring him and you want to you go. You want everyone in church to look at him and say, oh, isn't he so cute? Isn't he this is just just wonderful. And you think, yes, this is true. It's just great and wonderful. Well, that's fine. It's good. That's a great thing that we, we should absolutely want praise to come to those things that we love. Those things that are dear to us. Well, God's character, God's perfections are dear to him. And he wants there to be millions of other rational beings seeing the perfections of his character and praising his character so that's the reason he's created the world. And that's the reason that he upholds the universe by the word of his power in order that that all of these things of his character will have manifestation in all the endless works of providence. He's created the whole world. And now the works of providence as he works out all of his promises, how he brings all of these things to pass, all the wisdom of God and using all the foibles of men and all of these things. And we we think about Goodness, we think about how did Moab come to exist of the this, this seeminess of all that relationship and Moab came to exist and then the Moabites were there and then Ruth is a Moabite and Ruth is in the genealogy of Christ. How? How did that work? Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. He wants to show his glory. He wants to show how he operates within this created order in a way that just absolutely overwhelms, contradicts all of the shallow perceptions we have. So when we begin to see his control of the world, we see how Christ has done this. In order that the radiance of the triune God through his own nature and through his own activities will be shown. We will begin to see the connections of all of these and we'll be like the four living creatures there in Revelation with eyes all around, eyes within, eyes without, crying holy, holy, holy. You have created all things and for your sake they are and were created. We will see all of it as a manifestation of. Of the wisdom of God. And particularly the wisdom that leads to. Redemption. So he upholds all the universe by the word of his power and then immediately he skips through all of that goes right to this central issue That will be the culmination, will be the point at which the wisdom of God and the power of God and the mercy of God, all of these things about God and the completed work in the person of his son. He says this simple phrase. After making purification for sins. Hmm. Spoke to us by a son. How can he speak to us by a son? Well. There it is, he's the heir of all things, he created all things, he is a radiant of his glory, he is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all things in order to demonstrate this. And the culmination of it is in this event after making purification for sins. Who can imagine such a thing? How is such a thing impossible? If we think about the creature that has violated the law of the creator, the infinitely excellent creator, if we think about the verdict that comes upon those who have violated such a law, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. Part of the corruption of death, a part of the, the sentence of death was the corruption of heart, the corruption of nature that makes us alien to God and his enemies, so that we're without, we're without God in the world and we walk in according to the prince of the power of the air. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're by nature enemies of God. How is he going to bring about reconciliation and union with God from such creatures? He makes purification for sins. How can he do that? We are the one that owes it. He he, he can't make purification unless there's someone within our nature that can do it. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what the writer goes on to explain in such marvelous, marvelous passages that he, he was not ashamed to be made like his brothers in all things. And he bore our sin in his body and he lived a life in which he gained the righteousness of the law by which we have eternal life. And it's imputed to us. He made purification for sins. Well, the story of this, how he made purification for sins and and sort of an exposition, then, of what he has argued up to this point, we begin, we begin to pick up at verse five. His sh- Showing how the scripture witnesses to these great truths that he's already set forth. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, if we understand this in, in, in context, we see that what the writer is doing, is he's arguing that that this is a relationship that existed between father and son. In eternity. This is this is a statement of what is always present before God. He is begetting the son. That's why the son is the express image of his nature. When you have a son. You fathers, when you have a son, even when you have a daughter. Your offspring is of your nature. They come after you because we're creatures. We're time bound, but they are of our nature that we're not better than they are because we're prior to them in time They're not worse than we are because they are our offspring. They are of our nature. They're human beings. They're made in the image of God. They will have gifts that are given by God. The whole race is propagated by begetting. Thank you. Hey, there we are. All right. Yeah. They all knew you were good for something. (laughs) So when he says you are my son today, I've begotten you. This is this is a witness that there is a co-eternality and a sharing of nature between the father and the son. This is a statement about who Jesus is in eternity to which of the angels did he ever say if you're tempted to worship angels, just wait a minute. Wait a minute. To which of the angels did he ever say you are my son Today I've begotten you eternally. I am begetting you. You're always related to me by my begetting you. Or I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. This is the this was the prophecy that was given about to David, about the, 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 the one that would sit on his throne. It has an immediate reference to Solomon, but it has a final reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be a son of David but also a son of God. And again, now we see the progress. And again, when he brings the firstborn, meaning the one who has authority, the one who is the son of God, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he was already the firstborn of the father. Now, when he brings that firstborn of the father, that is the one eternally generated by the father into the world, he says. Let all God's angels worship Him, that baby in the manger, let them come and announce the coming and say glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace with men among that with whom he is pleased. Let them say unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord. And they went and they saw the Christ child and they fell down and they worshipped him that all God's angels worship him. Him. but of the angels, he says, Well he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire, they're his they're his servants. He sends them out wherever he, he wants to do these things. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He says this of the Son, he calls him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. (laughs) Boy, this is this is great. Just listen. Therefore, God, your God, he's already called him God. And now he's saying he's telling the son. Now, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who are his companions? Us. This is this is a condensed statement as the fact that the son has come into the world and the son has taken to himself our nature. We are now his companions. He is setting up a kingdom that he will rule. He could have done that simply as the sovereign Lord of the universe, who created all things, and all would be under him under judgment. We would know his righteousness and holiness. He could rule and reign over all of it. But the throne that he has, the kingdom that he's going to have, is going to be a redemptive kingdom. It is a kingdom that he gains to himself by righteousness, by his honoring the law. That which we did not do, he does. He loves righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, because of that life of loving righteousness and hated wickedness. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. Who for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's anointed with the oil of gladness. What was that joy set before him that the writer talks about in in the 12th chapter? Well, the joy set before him was having a kingdom of redeemed people who would know love and mercy and righteousness. Praise him. A redeemer king. And so he came and. Where well, we did not love righteousness. We love wickedness and hated righteousness. And though he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was without sin. He loved God with all of his heart forever and ever and every, every little intricate aspect of his emotions and of his affections and every motivation that came. There was never anything that entered his mind that said, Oh, God is too hard. God is bad. God is not fair. God is not doing this. He knew that all of it was an expression of the might and the power and The excellence and the wonder and the love of God, and he loved God with all of his heart. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, because of that, this righteous king now becomes a redeemer king. He has a joy that has been given him, and he's been anointed with. This oil of gladness. He is the only one who merits eternal life, eternal joy beyond all of his companions. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to his own way. All of us are sinners. There is no fear of God before our eyes. We do not seek God. The poison of asp is under our lips. Our feet are swift to shed blood. We are hateful and we hate one another and we are hated by others. And we're jealous and we're envy, and we're filled with malice. We do not love righteousness, but there's one among us. There's one in our nature who loved righteousness, hated wickedness. He gained eternal life. He was anointed with the oil of gladness. And now through faith in him, union with him, we gain his reward, his merit, the gift of eternal life. And so his. Priesthood. Making purification for sins is for the sake of gaining a kingdom of gladness. That's the reason that he's from the tribe of Judah. And that he has to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He had to be of the tribe of Judah in order to sit on the throne of his father David. The, 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 the final, his being heir of all things was the kingship. So that had to be the tribe that he was from among his companions. But he is appointed, especially as a priest, not out of the tribe of Levi, but a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace and whose whose record in Scripture, no beginning, no end, which is symbolic, typological of of Christ. So he is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but he comes from the tribe of Judah because his priesthood is going to serve the purpose of his kingship in having a kingdom of righteousness that is filled with redeemed people. He made purification for sins as a priest. He reigns out of the tribe of Judah. And then he says, and you laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, which he's, we've, he's already talked about. The heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. He's, he's giving this scriptural affirmation that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's controlling it. He, will, he has made it. They will end. He will roll it up. He never changes. You are the same Your years will never end. And then at the end, after he has accomplished all of this work, after he has controlled providence and brought his kingdom in, he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is ruling, he is reigning. All of those who opposed him during his earthly life, those who opposed his commandments before the incarnation, those who opposed his gospel, who maintain their opposition to the end of their life, are considered his enemies, they will be put under his feet. And so the sun will rule. The sun will reign. And he still uses all of those that he's created, angels. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And so this one who is prophet, priest and king, this Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final word that God has spoken. God has spoken to us in a son. And we know that this word is absolutely accurate. It is full. It is complete because the son is the express image of the father. And it was for his sake. He knows why the world was created. and So we, all that he communicates to us is absolutely true about the world. And he knows that the reason it was created was that there might be myriads upon myriads that are redeemed. He made purification for sins. And he knows that in the end he will rule and he will reign as the redeemer king. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everyone who knows his king should have an increasing joy, an increasing sense of great privilege and grace that has come to you because you've been drawn to know him. You've been given a context in which you can hear his word. You can hear his revelation. Your mind can continually be changed in order that you appreciate him and know him. You're conformed to his image. We should all live in gratitude for that. But if there are those who do not know him and you still are holding back and you're reserving and you think that it is all nice to have religion and everybody should have their own religion, if it makes you a better person, then that's fine. Uh, But it's simply not for you. You think it's just a bit of enthusiasm. You think it's a bit radical. You think it's a bit exclusive. Um, Either. What is said here is true or it is a very terrible imposition upon human society. If it is not true that Jesus Christ is son of God, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of his glory and Jesus Christ has created the world that he might be the heir of all things and that he controls all things by the word of his power, if all that is not true, then then all of the. Benefits that we might think that we receive from this are very insignificant in light of the extravagance and the imposition upon human society of these claims. But you know that cannot be the case. You know that a book of such claims and that comes to us in such with advocacy of such Humility and repentance. That comes to us with the admonitions of being servants. Of being willing to forsake all to follow this Christ. To count everything but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of him. You know that a book that has that kind of presentation. Of a life. That should be committed to things that are. Higher. Things that relate to forgiveness of sins, things that relate to eternity and resurrection and the knowledge of God and the worship of God, a book like that simply cannot be matched anywhere else. You know that this is true. And on the call of this book, on the call of these words, you should lay down your opposition to Christ, lay down your opposition to this truth and you should embrace this purification for sins as yours, because Christ has said, "He that cometh to me, I will no eyes cast out." He says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your souls." No reason you shouldn't be among those who will come and embrace Christ. And find purification for sins let 's bow for prayer, <clears throat> Father. We thank you for the word you have given us. We thank you for the glory of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts to see his power and the wonder of what he has offered us and what he has done. We pray that we may share the joy that he that was given to him. He was anointed with the Oil of gladness above his companions. Father, may that joy of eternal life be ever-flowing, ever-increasing in our lives, and may it be initiated in the life of some here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: In a few minutes we'll sing a song. During that song, I encourage you, if you have questions about the message today, a glorious word from God today. If you have questions about that, you need somebody to pray with you, other things you need to talk about. Our elders will be in the back. And during that song, we just encourage you to make your way back there uh, and spend some time with them and ask your questions and have somebody pray with you. Would you do that? Let's stand together
1: and sing and sing, and sing, and sing.